Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Welcome, 11 o'clock, um, both here in a worship center, and welcome you over in the Ridge. Um, great to be with you. Um, I want to invite you into a holy moment right now. Um, God is so good. Uh, all right. I've got the energy I need. We got cameras coming out here. It's like, it's awesome. Uh, anyway, um, how are you doing today? You guys doing well? You seem, you seem like you're doing well. Um, excited to be uh, with you today. We had a great Next Step dessert last night. You know, 20-some people new to Rocky Peaks. Had a great time there. Um, so it was kind of a late night, but you know, uh, it was uh, awesome. And um, so anyway, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And uh, so inside your program is green and white message note sheet. But before we do that, I just want to call your attention. You may not have heard about this because we just got news this morning. But over in Egypt, today was Palm Sunday uh, today. And uh, over in Egypt and two Coptic churches, because Christians are a minority there, uh, there were explode, bomb explosions in two churches uh, by ISIS that killed 43 believers uh, in, uh, you know, in Egypt. Uh, this week was a crazy week, another crazy week in Syria with chemical warfare being released, many people killed. Uh, it's just a, a really troubled region of the world. And so as we jump in today and, and kind of continue our series, I want us to pray as a church for our brothers and sisters um, in Egypt. I want to pray for the nation of Syria, that uh, the king of all creation would rule there, that righteousness and peace and justice would come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. You and the rich, just join me. Father, thank you for this time to come together. We're excited about this series. We're excited about what you're going to teach us, God, and yet we're so aware that around the world there are people who love you who are suffering greatly for, for your name. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in these churches and in the whole nation of Egypt that I'm sure is shaken by this violence. God, we pray for those who have lost loved ones. We pray for these Christians. We pray for courage, God, that they would not run, they would not hide, but they would seek you, that they would you give them supernatural courage to stand up in the face of suffering and announce that Jesus is king. And I, I pray that you would be with them and comfort them in their lives. God, we pray for the nation of Syria. 400,000 people died through this conflict, a huge number. God, there is so much suffering. We pray, it's so complicated. We just pray for righteousness to reign. We pray that the right rule would be there. We pray as King Jesus, you would rule over that nation and bring righteousness and justice and truth and peace to this war-torn land into so many refugees who are fleeing for their lives. And we, uh, we pray now that as we continue this series today, you would be with us, you would join with us, you would be our teacher, you would do the supernatural things you always do when we meet in your name and open your word by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today. It's a, it's a warm summer morning, and she's thought about this plot for the last couple of years, honestly. It's not something she's taken lightly. Her life's in a very difficult spot. Um, he has, he's wounded her. He has, um, he has defrauded her. Um, as a result of the choices that he has made, her future and destiny are completely up in the air, and she has struggled with what to do to take care of herself, and her options are limited. 
And so she's weighed the options. The one that she's settled on, it's dangerous, it's scary, it's going to require moral compromise, and yet it's the only way out that she can see. And so with some fear and some trepidation, she packs her bags. She goes and gets to disguise it, or it's going to require. She packs them, and she heads out that day knowing that if this goes wrong, it could cost her her life. Well, today we are continuing uh, this new series that we started last week. It's called Unfiltered, uh, Capturing a True Image of Jesus. Now, if you're brand new here, uh, first of all, welcome. But uh, on top of that, uh, this, the, the core concept behind this series is that if you were to ask anyone who's studied this, educated in this, who is the most influential person in human history? Hands down, it would be Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it doesn't really matter if you're Christian, non-Christian, follower, not follower. I'm not talking about saying who is the one person that has the greatest influence in human history. As we'll see in this series, it would be clearly Jesus of Nazareth. But the irony is, is that whether it's in the church of Jesus or outside in secular culture, with each passing year here in our Western culture, we're becoming less and less clear on who Jesus is was further and forward, uh, further and further uh, removed. And so the end result is we tend to recreate Jesus in our own image. We tend to project onto him what we think Jesus should be, uh, both in church uh, and culture. So our goal in this series is to step back and, and to kind of get an unfiltered. Let's get some new pictures, some unfiltered view of who Jesus is. And the way we're doing it is we're going back to one of the earliest and most influential, important documents of the, of the life and teaching of Jesus. It's called the Gospel of Matthew. It happens to be the very first book in our New Testament. Now, if you were here last week, you know that Matthew starts off by giving this big picture overview of where this story is going, that he's going to make the claim that, that everything in Israel's history and everything in the history of the world is leading up to the introduction of this key character named Jesus of Nazareth, who according to the ancient prophets of Israel would one day come, a great king would come who will rescue not just Israel, but all of creation and restore all of creation and bring to shalom, the kingdom of God. So he's making a claim that Jesus of Nazareth is this great king, and his uh, first line of evidence is his bloodlines or his family tree, because according to the ancient prophecies, remember last week we used the analogy of Aragorn in Lord of the Rings? And if you weren't here, you're saying, what kind of cult am I part of? But um, <laughs> if you weren't here, go to YouTube, check it out. Uh, but in the same way that like Aragorn had to come from a certain line in order to fulfill the ancient prophecies, so that Jesus, uh, so the great Messiah, is going to have to come from certain lines. He's going to have to be from the, from the nation of Abraham. He's going to have to come from the line of David. And so when he starts this off, he's saying that he's making this claim that Jesus is the great king, and he has come, his first line of evidence is that he's come from the right family, uh, family line. So today, we're going to be continuing that series. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. I promised you last week that uh, this would not be boring. I will promise to keep my promise today. Uh, we're going to move through kind of rapidly, uh, but I need to set it up for you so we can do that. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that is called um, uh, Jesus Genealogy is Family Tree. All right, so, so here we go. So last week we started with verse 1, and it goes like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Remember, Messiah means uh, Christ 
It's the same, uh, I mean, and it refers to the great king who would one day come, right? So this is a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah who comes from the line of, according to prophecy, the son of David and son of Abraham. So now what he's going to do is he has to substantiate that claim by giving us his family tree. Now remember, we saw last week, in the English, first verse only has 16 words. We said in the Greek it's got eight words. But if you're a first century Jew, and that's our goal in this series, let's go back and look at Jesus as a first century Jew. It's written for Jews. Uh, how do you do it? If you are a first century Jew, you're reading this in the Greek. Remember, the Bible you're going to be used to reading or hearing is the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. These eight words in Greek are going to tell a story. They're going to pack a punch. You're going to know exactly where the story is going. We don't have time to review all of that today. Again, if, you're, if you aren't here, catch YouTube uh, and catch up. But, uh, so, so now he's going to substantiate the claim. But to do this, he's going to take the entire history of the nation from Abraham, the father of the nation, to the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Messiah, and he's going to break it into three specific chapters of their history, all right? So we're going to break it down into uh, three chapters. So, so let me kind of give you those chapters. You'll see it there on your note sheet, the bullets. So chapter one, uh, I'm calling from father to king. So we're going to move from the father of the nation, who is Abraham. Good. Three of you, the rest kind of wake up. Okay. We're going to move from the father, of the, who is Abraham, to the great king, who is David, right. So you got the approximate dates there, right? And then the second chapter is going to go from the high point. The high point of Israel's history is King David. You're going to go from the high point in the nation to the lowest point in the nation, which is the exile that takes place in 597. So in 597, the nation of Babylon is going to come in and they're going to take over uh, Israel and they're going to take the king on the throne. His name is Jehoiachin. And, and most of the people of Israel are going to take him away to Babylon. Now, it's not going to be until 10 years later they're going to come back and destroy the city completely. But in 597 is when the king is going to be taken from the throne, taken to Babylon. All right, so this is the lowest point in their history. Now, as Americans, 21st century, it's hard for us to identify with the emotion of the exile but I want you to picture this. I want to picture you in, in 35 years that China takes over the world and conquers the United States. And some of you are going like, that's not even a prophecy. Anyway, so uh, 35 years and that, he takes every, and that China takes everyone in Los Angeles and they transfer us and make us workers uh, in the areas surrounding Beijing. Now, I want you to picture that, what that means. It's the death of the, the Declaration of Independence, the death of democracy, the death of our way of life, everything we've held dear as Americans. It is gone. It's taken away. You're away in a foreign land as slaves or servants. That was what the exile was for Israel. It was like the death blow to their nation. And so we're going to go from the high point with David to the exile in five. 97. Now, third chapter is going to go from the exile. So what's crazy is that most nations will never recover from that, right? Like how many, how many of you today are Edomites? Can I see the Edomites here, right? Any Amorites in the room? How about Ammonites? You got any Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Hittites? Uh, right? It's like, no, usually when, you, when your nation is destroyed and you're taken into exile, you intermarry, it's, you're gone. You're never coming back. But the crazy thing is, Israel survives this, right? And they not only survive, 
but there's actually a descendant, the Davidic line that went through Jeconiah, that last king who was on the throne when, when Babylon came, that, that line continues, right? And so we're going to go from 597, the exile in chapter 3, we're going to go from that all the way down to the birth of the Messiah, about 4 BC. Okay, so there's going to be three major movements. Now, before we jump in, uh, two points I want to make about this genealogy that are important. Number one is that the genealogy is not complete, all right? So Matthew is going to summarize, he's going to, he's going to break down these three chapters into three chapters of 14 generations. And so to get that number, he's going to need, especially in the last one, to skip a couple generations. And the question is, why would he do that? And the answer probably has to do with uh, the numbers in Jewish culture. Like numbers are important, right? So, uh, so seven is an important number. What's seven represent? Yeah, completion or perfection, right? So what is 14? Well, it's like perfection on steroids. It's like twice perfection, right? So, uh, and so he's going to break all their history into three chapters of 14 generations. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit more. Uh, some scholars will say, and actually, if you think even further, that three groups of 14 could be broken down into six groups of seven. And so six is one short of perfection, which would suggest that all six previous gener- uh, these chapters are leading up to the final chapter when Messiah will come, the seventh the seventh final, right? So we don't, we don't know exactly, but we, we think it's going to do it. That's, so number one, it's a little bit selective. Secondly, um, that I understand this, that as 21st century uh, Christ followers or Christ investigators, whatever, uh, that, that we tend to look at, like they're boring, right? So last week, I get this. You get to it, many of us just skip over, let's get to the good stuff. Right? So I get that. Um, because we, we don't recognize these names. You know, we don't recognize most of them. And even those we recognize, we can't pronounce them. And there's all these ayahs. We got, you know, Hezekiah and Jeconiah and Zechariah. And we just like, we're like, we're like, oy vey. Like, we don't know, like, what to do. We can't even say these names, right? So even if we want to read them, so we don't know who they are. And, and we can't even pronounce them. And so uh, boring. But catch this. If you're a first century Jew, these are the names of your history, you know these names like the back of your hand. Many of these names are going to be very famous names. And when you speak the name, it's going to conjure up. Like, like, so if I, if I say Martin Luther King Jr., that doesn't, that's not just a name. That conjures up freedom marches in the South. That conjures up Washington Mall. That conjures up I Have a Dream. That conjures up all kinds of things just when I mention that name. And so that's because we know that. So, so imagine in America, imagine if there was one family and these were the people in their family. We're reading their genealogy. It starts with George Washington. And then it went to Thomas Jefferson. And then it went to Benjamin Franklin. And then it went to Benedict Arnold. And then it went to uh, Betsy Ross. And then it went to Abraham Lincoln. And then it went to Robert E. Lee. And then we moved on to John Wilkes Booth, and then to Harriet Tubman. And then we jump forward in time, and we go to, to uh, Albert Einstein, who was the father of JFK, right? Who was the father uh, of Martin Luther uh, King Jr., who was the father of uh, Richard Nixon, who was the father of Ronald Reagan. You see what I'm saying? 
It's like, like these, for, uh, like for us, they're just names. If you're a Jew, this is your story. This is your history. And catch this. It's not like for us as Americans, yeah, those names conjure up. For them, this is their family. This is relatives. This is all one family. This is our story, and it's a story that conjures up great times and dark times and horrible times and times of slavery and times of desert and times of wasteland and times of victory and times of hope and times of despair and catch us times of promise that one day it will be different. And so what I want you to catch as we read through this, that for us as 21st century Americans, it's names but at least we can go back and understand a little bit, if you're a first century Jew, what this would be for them, all right? So we're going to run through pretty rapidly now. And so uh, he starts with big picture, verse 1, that, that this is a story about the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Now he's to substantiate that claim. And so here we go. Chapter number 1, we're going to go from, from uh, father to king. And so we go, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And by the way, when it says uh, the father of, in the Greek, it's much more, um, it's an active verb. So we don't really have good language for this in English now, um, but it would be like saying this. It would be like saying that Abraham fathered Isaac, okay? And then Isaac fathered Jacob. So in the old King James, this is why they would say beget. We don't really use the word beget anymore, but it's an active, and it's really important because Every father is going, to, is going to father the next generation in this account until we get to the last one, which actually becomes very important, right? So here we go. So Abraham uh, fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. So, so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a, a son named Jacob. Jacob's name is later changed to Israel, right? At the end of his life, Israel has how many sons? Whoa. Okay, we need to go back to Sunday school. Uh, how many sons does Israel have, Jacob have? Yeah, 12, right. 12 sons, they eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So the fourth son is a son named Judah, okay? And we're going to follow through Judah's line now. So, so Jacob's the father of Judah and his brothers, and then Judah has twins. He's the father of Perez and Zerah. And the mother was Tamar. Now, this is interesting because in ancient genealogies, women are hardly ever mentioned. And if they are, it's just because they're super exceptional or something. So in this genealogy, there are going to be four women prior to Mary, who's the fifth. The question is, why? 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 It, when you never do this, why does that happen? We'll come back to that later. So Tamar is the first woman. So, so then uh, we're going to follow through Perez. She has these twins, but we're going to follow through Perez's line. He's the father of Hezron. Hezron's the father of Ram. That's where they got the idea for the Dodge trucks. Uh, Ram is the father of Aminadab. Aminadab's the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Uh, no, no comment. Salmon is the father of Boaz, who's the mother, was Rahab. Now, Rahab's second woman, she's famous. She's the prostitute, right, in Jericho. When the nation of Israel is about to go in the promised land, they send spies over. She helps out the spies. And so she then becomes part of Israel. She decides to stick with the winner. And so Boaz then is the father of Obed. Obed's a mother was Ruth, third woman. Ruth is famous, right? She is uh, she gets a book of the Bible named after her. We like Ruth. Uh, Obed's the father of Jesse, and then Jesse's the father of King David. So we've gone from the father of the nation to the high point of the nation of kingdom, chapter one. There's 14 generations, okay? Uh, next chapter, we're going to go from the, the king now all the way to the lowest point, the exile. So 
David was the father of Solomon. Here comes the fourth woman whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now we know her as whom? Bathsheba, right? So Bathsheba was a woman. She had an affair with King David. She gets pregnant. Uh, He tries to deceive the husband. He doesn't go for it. So David has him knocked off in battle. One of the most sordid events in Israel's history. We'll come back to that. But she makes the genealogy, right? Okay, number seven. So Solomon, uh, he's the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam's the father of Abijah. And Abijah's the father of Asa. And Asa's the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat's the father of Jehoram. Jehoram's the father of Uzziah. Uzziah's the father of Jotham. Jotham's the father of Ahaz. Ahaz's the father of Hezekiah. Another Ayah. Hezekiah and the father of Manasseh. Manasseh's the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Another Ayah. And Josiah is the father of Jeconiah. Another Ayah. And so uh, Jeconiah is the last king. He's the king on the throne, 597. When Babylon comes in, takes him away. And, and again, like I said, at that point, you think end of nation, right? It's over, uh, and the Davidic line is over. But no, uh, hope springs eternal. And so he's not executed. And so he has a son. And so we're going to continue on after the exile. So now we're going to move on from the time of the exile when the nation of Israel, it's like a small percentage, not most, but small percentage, come back to Israel, a very dark time in their history. Now we're moving to the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, the final books of, of the Bible, and then we move, we're going to move into the 400 silent years that Dre taught on. And so it's, it's, kind of a, it's really not a very happy time. It's like they come back from exile, but it's like, it's like God's not returned to the nation. You know, glory's not returned to the temple. It's just kind of a messed up time. And so, um, so we're going to move now. So after the exile, verse 12, Jeconiah is the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel is the father of Zerubbabel. Now, we know him. He's a famous guy. But after this point, the Bible, we're going to start moving pretty closely now out of biblical times into the silent years. And so Matthew, up to this point, would have had access to biblical records in both Genesis and Chronicles about these generations. But from this point on, he's going to be dependent on his independent research, his genealogical study that he did. You know, he went on Ancestry.com and paid the money. And so uh, anyway, so, uh, so Zerubbabel, verse 13, he's the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob's the father of Joseph. So there's a name we recommend, uh, we recognize. That's Joseph of the, the Christmas story, right? But notice how the language changes. At this point, we'll no longer say that Joseph um, is the father or father Jesus. The language is going to change, setting us up for this big surprise, big reveal that's coming. So Jacob is the father of Joseph, and he's the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So he sums it up then. Um, that says so there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, that's, that's what we call chapter 1, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, that's what we call chapter 2, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And so God has worked in history to bring about his promise. Now, here's what I want to do. In the time that we have today, um, I want to highlight two really important pictures, images, of who Jesus is. Help us to kind of go back in time, see us as a first uh, century Jew would, strip away some images maybe we have, um, and and kind of give us more unfiltered image of what it would be like to be there, right? Two really important things. So there on your note sheet, you have a section that's called Jesus Genealogy, Two Life Lessons. Let's jump in. Uh, So the first thing that, that jumps out, if you're a first century Jew, right? If you're reading as a first century Jew, 
uh, I think the first thing that would stand out to you is, is the big picture claim is that God keeps his promises. Now, now, to us looking back, we might miss this, but this is an incredible claim. You think of all that the nation of Israel has gone through from the time of Abraham. And if you know the story, it's a sad story. It's not a great story. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know it's mostly a bad story. There are highlights here and there, but it's a sad story. It's a story of rebellion. It's a story of judgment. It's a story of, of uh, social injustice. It's a story of idolatry. It's a story of wildernesses and wanderings and being conquered. It's a story of slavery in Egypt. It's a story of then slavery again in Babylon. It's coming back to a destroyed nation. This is not a happy story. And yet in spite of all of that, in spite of the rebellion and all the disaster, God has kept his promise. And not only has he kept his promise in spite of all these obstacles, the point that Matthew is making is he has kept it in his perfect time. 14, three cents of 14, God has worked in his perfect time. Now, Last week, give us a feel for this. Again, a little bit more like a first century Jew might read this. Uh, last week, we looked at two of the most important promises that flow out of Matthew 1.1. The Messiah would come from the line of Abraham and the line of David. I want to look at two more. Of course, there's many others, but two of the most important. Let's give it a feel. So uh, let's start with, uh, we've got Abraham, right? We've got Abraham. Abraham's the father of? Oh... Wow. You know, last week with the water thing, I get that, you know. But today, 11 o'clock, hello. All right. Okay, Ridge, I hope it's going better over there because I'm struggling in here. But, uh, okay, so Abraham's the father of Isaac. Isaac's the father of Jacob. Okay, Jacob has 12 sons, and the fourth son is named Judas. So at the end of his life, the nation, this family, about 70 people, have traveled down to Egypt, right, uh, and so Jacob calls in his 12 sons, and he's going to bless them, and he's going to prophesy over some of them. And when he gets to the fourth son, this is what he said. He says in, uh, this is in Genesis 49, he says, you are a lion's cub, O Judah, and like a lion, he crouches and lies down, and like a lioness, who dares to rouse him, like you don't mess with a lion, he says, the scepter, which of course is the sign of a king, right? So the scepter will not depart from Judah, and nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And so in Genesis 12, the promise gave to Abraham is through you, all the world will be blessed. We don't know how that's going to work out, but when you get a couple generations down, Jacob prophesies over your fourth son, a great king like a lion will one day come who will rule the nations. Now let's move forward in time. Let's jump ahead about a thousand years in time to approximately the year 700. So we have jumped now 300 years beyond David. So, so David's given the promise we, we saw last week, and uh, like Psalm 89 is one of the examples, that from his line, a great king would come who would rule the world. So we, we know that. But in the intervening years, the prophets would fill in more details. So the prophet Isaiah comes along around in the 700s. He's probably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, he's prophesying, he said, because of your sin against the Lord for these hundreds of years, uh, you're going to lose the nation. You're going to be taken away 
uh, into exile by a nation called Babylon. A superpower is going to come, going to be taken away. He says, but as disastrous as this is, like going to Beijing from L.A., one day you will come back. God is not finished with you yet. And he compares his story to the story of an olive tree. He compares Israel to an olive tree. And so you may not know this, but olive trees can live to be as old as 2,000 years. Now, um, so Israel sometimes compared to God's olive tree. So, so uh, the thing about olive trees, like when we go to Israel, the very first day we're at a place called Hashamanah. It's a biblical garden there. And, uh, and when you're there, we learn a lot about uh, the land of Israel, the agriculture and the customs and so on. It kind of sets us up for the whole trip. And so one thing you learn there about olive trees is that olive trees can live forever, but the way you measure the age of an olive tree is not by its rings. It doesn't have rings. You measure it by the size of its trunk. Because the inside of an olive tree, as it gets older, becomes more and more hollow. And so what happens is that when wind comes or storms come, a tree can be knocked over or cut off. But the amazing thing is, because it still has its roots, sometimes a shoot will come up from the original roots and a new olive tree will continue. So Isaiah uses this metaphor. He says, our nation is like an olive tree, like God's olive tree. And we are going to be toppled by the nation of Babylon but one day a shoot will come up from the root, and he says the root of Jesse. And so Jesse was the father of David. So he's saying this Davidic line that's going to be destroyed, like with Jeconiah taken away, that in the future a shoot will come up from the, the line of David to rule. And it's a very famous messianic passage. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but if you kept, went on, you would recognize it because it's a Christmas passage. Now, Isaiah 11 this is what he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And from the roots, a branch will bear fruit. And so the water will be, and so the earth then will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as waters cover the sea. He says, and this was the promise of the prophets that one day God will return and restore his creation. The great shalom will be brought back. It's often tied to prophecies of the Messiah. You think of Genesis 1, when God creates the earth, what does he say? It's good. Right now, we got stuff going on in Syria. It's bad. we got stuff going on in Egypt. It's bad. We live in a fallen world. Israel lived in a fallen world. It was horrible. Their nation was about to be ravaged and taken away in exile. It's a horrible world. But the promise is one day, a shoot will come from the line of David. And when that comes, the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord. It will be restored. And so this prophecy is given, and he says, in that day, the root of Jesse, in other words, the line of David, will stand as a banner for the peoples, and the nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. So by the time you get to the first century, the nation of Israel is reading these prophecies and other prophecies like it, trying to understand what's going on in their nation. Because for the last four, 500 years, for the most part, except for a small amount of time under the Maccabees, that they've been under one foreign pagan nation after another. They've been dominated by Babylon and then Persia and then Greece with Alexander the Great and then the Ptolemies in, in, uh, in Egypt and then the Seleucids from Syria and then the Parth uh, Parthians and now Rome. 
And so where are the promises? And when is God going to act? And is God ever going to act? And if he acts, what will it be like? And will the Messiah be involved? Will it be one Messiah or two Messiah? And what do we need to do as a nation to prepare for that? Is there anything we can do to help speed up this process? These were the kinds of questions that were being asked in first century Judaism. And catch us, as we will see as we go through Matthew, there were many different responses, many different theories. It wasn't like everyone thought the same thing at all, any more than in Judaism today. And so they're trying to figure out, and so as Matthew starts his story writing to first century Jews, he says, listen, my claim is that God has kept his promise, and he's kept it in his perfect time. But catch this, he has also kept it in his perfect way. And catch this. It is different than anyone expected. Now, it's interesting because as you follow this story out to the end in the Bible, we have the story of creation, revolt, the rise of nation through whom God would rescue all of creation. As you follow that story throughout the Bible, it ends in the book of Revelation, right? We come to Revelation chapter 5. They're on your note sheet. And so here's what's going on. Uh, the apostle John is on the island of Patmos. Uh, he has this vision, his first vision uh, of God in heaven, like Ezekiel or something in the Old Testament. And he sees God on the throne, and God has this scroll in his hand. Now, the scroll, as we're going to find out, is sort of the, the, the future of the creation. It's like, what's going to happen? So we live in a fallen world, right? It's a horrible world. It's a world that's a mess. Uh, but, uh, but what's the future going to hold? And so the future is on this scroll, but the scroll is sealed. It has seven like wax seals, like you'd seal an ancient document. And so to, in, in order to, uh, to find out what's written, you're going to have to break those seals. And so if you want to see what's going to happen, if you want to bring the future into reality, someone has to be able, have the right to be the right person uh, to unwrap that scroll. And so John is really sad because there's no one in heaven or earth who has the right to bring the story to its end. This story is a mess. This world's a mess. Who has the right and the authority to write the final chapters and bring it to the end where the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea? Who can bring in the shalom? And there is no one, and John is weeping over our, our, our history. And at that point, an angel comes up and hands him a tissue. I said, John, do not, here's a Kleenex, do not weep. That's what he said. So he comes up, the angel says, do not weep. He said, see, the lion from the tribe of Judah. What, does that sound familiar? That's Genesis 49. The, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Does that sound familiar? That's Isaiah 11. He says that he's triumphed. Now, when has he triumphed? He triumphed at the cross and the resurrection. You see, we often think, we'll talk about this next week at Easter, we often think that one day Jesus will be king. No, no. When Jesus rose and ascended, he became king. He is king now. He is king now. He is king. That's why we say Jesus is Lord. We don't say Jesus will be Lord. No, no. He is Lord. Now, it raises lots of questions. Well, if he's Lord, why is the world so messed up? That's for a different day. But... He is Lord, like now, right? So he says he has triumphed, and he says, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Like he is the one who has the right to bring history to its appointed end, to restore all things, to turn 
all wrongs and rights. So at the end of Revelation, uh, the new Jerusalem comes down. We have the new heavens and the new earth. Creation is restored. The story is done. And it's because the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. You see? And so this is a story that Matthew is telling. He's saying, hey, listen, some of you, you're still waiting for Messiah. I need to tell you, he has come, and he's come in God's perfect time, but it's come in a way you never saw. But I'm telling you, it's come, and let me tell you the story. And let me start by putting out a kind of evidence piece number one, like in a court of law. Let me tell you about the genealogy that unlike King Herod, who claims to be like a king of the Jews, but he's really an Edomite. He's not a Jew. He pretends to be a Jew. He's not even a Jew, unlike other first century would-be messiahs who claim to be a messiah, but they don't come from the family line. Unlike the Maccabees who led us and pretended to be a high priest, but they're not from the family. They're not from the right line. Unlike these, like, Jesus of Nazareth came from the right line. Exhibit number one. And he's come at the right time, and he's come at the perfect time, and he has come in a, in a perfect way, but it's why it's different than you thought. Now, here's a lesson for us today. If God can keep his promise to Abraham, and if God can keep his promise to Jacob and to Judah, if God can keep his promise to David and can keep his promise to Isaiah, then as followers of the Messiah, we can trust he will keep his promises to us. So, so the, the message is, is that if it's a promise that God has made in his word, if it's a promise he's made to you by his spirit, take it to the bank, it will happen. It may be not when you want it to happen, it will be in his perfect time. It might not be the way you want it to happen. It might be better. But God will take his part. In fact, the apostle Paul, looking back, remember, Matthew's written, what, 70, maybe 70 AD. The apostle Paul's writing 2 Corinthians in the 50s. So it's actually before, even though it comes later in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians, Paul looks back on the history of Israel, and the history of creation. He says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Messiah. God has kept every promise that he made to Israel. He's kept it through 42 generations plus. He's kept it through wilderness. He's kept it through rebellion. He's, taken it through, he's kept it through slavery in Egypt. He kept it through exile in Babylon. He kept it through the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He kept it through Jeconiah being taken away as slave, and you think it's the end of the line. God is impossible, as it seems, has kept his promise, and if he keeps his promises to Messiah and all creation, he will keep his promise to you. Amen? All right, now number two. The second thing that jumps out at me is that, that Matthew wants us to get, and I think a first century Jew would get very quickly, is that this Messiah is for everyone. Okay, so that may not seem so strange to you today because we're so used to, remember, first century Jews, they think Messiah is for them. Not the world, the the world, the Gentiles, they're the dogs, right? They, they're going to get judged. Like, no, no, when Messiah, they, they're not part of this story. Right? In fact, when Jesus, wanted, in one of his first sermons, as we'll see when he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, when he suggests that God loves Gentiles, they almost kill him. This was revolutionary. And so, so right, right at the beginning, uh, he wants to say that God is for, uh, this Messiah is for everyone, and not just for uh, all nations, He's for 
all kinds of people, even really screwed up, messed up people. Like the Pharisees thought, like, if we get righteous enough, that will help speed his return. The Essenes down at the Dead Sea, Dead Sea Scroll, they're like, we're going to live apart from, because if we can just be righteous, he'll come back for us. They thought that the Messiah, when he came, he would only relate to righteous people. That's what they, many Jews thought in the first century. And so, what right off the bat, Matthew is sending a shot over the bow. This Messiah is going to be a little different than you think. He's for everyone. And so case in point, you know, you read this genealogy, and if you're fairly familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize right away, there are heroes and villains, aren't there? You got heroes like Abraham and David, you got like Manasseh, horrible king, you know, sacrificing his son in the altar to the foreign gods. I mean, you got, you got the highs and the lows, and if you're really familiar with the Old Testament, you'll realize this, that most of the heroes are also villains, right? So like Abraham, yeah, great, follow God anywhere, uh, yeah, willing to sacrifice his son, but he's also willing to sacrifice his wife. It's like, oh, yeah, she's my sister. You want her in your harem? Okay, go ahead. Just don't touch me. Uh, you know, uh, you think of David, your know, great king David. It's like an affair with Bathsheba and then tries to, you know, deceive the husband when that doesn't work. I mean, what would we do today if that happened, if our president had an affair with the wife of a four-star general, right? And then, and then it's, it comes out. And so before it comes out, he's like, I got to do something. So he sends him into harm's way by executive order and he's killed. And this all comes out. I mean, what would we do? We'd want his head. You know, we're like, King David. Yeah, whatever. So this story, like the one thing you learn from the genealogy of Jesus is Jesus had a messed up family. All right? Now, I realize that some of you think that you have a dysfunctional family. And a lot of you are very right. I've talked to many of you. But, <laughs> but here's what I want you to catch is that some of you think, like, how could I have a relationship with Jesus? I come from such a bad, like, he could never relate to me. Like, are you serious? Like, it's really interesting. One of the big questions of the genealogy is, why the four women? Like, why are four women in here? It's like, women are never included in genealogy. Like, why the four women? And there are different theories, but one of the things that's obvious is all four of these women are of really questionable moral character. And there's a good chance, catch us, that all four, well, some for sure, a good chance we'll have this later, all four are Gentiles. So it's really interesting. Like, let me give an example. Look at verse 3. This is crazy, even by biblical standards. Okay, so verse 3. Judah, remember he's the fourth son, right? Fourth son of Jacob. He has twins, uh, Perez and Zerah. So it's kind of interesting. Well, why are you telling us that? Normally I don't care. Uh, Perez and Zerah, and his and the mother's name was Tamar. Now that sounds pretty tame, right? No, no pun intended. That sounds pretty tame. Right? Okay, great. So you move on. Okay, so her story is told in, in Genesis 38. This is the story that we started the day with, right? So here's a story. And to understand this story, you have to understand ancient culture in Israel, right? So in ancient Israel, the Old Testament, that uh, it was considered honorable if a man marries a woman and then the husband dies young before any uh, male heirs are born. we got a problem because now the family name and the family inheritance can't pass on. And that's really considered sacrosanct. So in that culture, it was considered honorable if the man has a brother, that the brother would marry the widow, they would have a son, and that son then would technically come under the the first, the, the brothers, the dead brothers line, and the inheritance. Are you with me here? So some of you are saying, that is so gross, I can't stand my brother-in-law. 
But anyway, that was considered honorable. It is the right and godly. That's how it was considered, right? So, so anyway, this is a story. You have to understand that. So here's the story. So Judah, right? Judah uh, has three sons. Tamar is his daughter-in-law. So Tamar uh, marries his first son, and then the son dies. So she's a widow, right? So Judah does the right and honorable thing. He gives her the second son to be her husband, um, and then he dies. And Judah is freaking out. He's thinking, black widow. You know, he's thinking like, uh, like no life insurance. Let's think, for that. So he's like, I don't want to give my third son. Now, the third son is still young. He's a little young to be married. He's, you know, 10, no, whatever. And so he's like, um, so, the, you know, the thing is, he needs to wait for the son to grow up and be of marriageable age, you know, 12. So uh, anyway, whatever it is, uh, the, the kid's name is Sheila, which is like, oh, man, I thought a boy named Sue was bad. But uh, anyway, uh, so the kid's name is Sheila. So when Sheila grows up, let's just say it's Sheila. That's like the Hebrew way. That makes me feel better. So Sheila uh, grows up, and now he's old enough. And so Tamar is watching, right? Because her future hangs in the balance. And that culture probably wasn't free to go out and just marry again. The honorable thing was to wait and marry some family and to carry the, the name and the thing on. So, so she's kind of stuck. And, you know, if, if the, when Judah passes away, she has no husband. I mean, her, her future is way up in the air. And so she's waiting and waiting, and she can tell as time, okay, he's old enough, he's old enough, it's another year, it's another year. He's not doing the right thing. He's afraid that if Sheila, he's afraid that I'm bad luck, and the kid's going to die. So he's not going to do the honorable thing. And so she's surveying her options. She's not sure what to do. And she decides to do something dangerous and crazy. But she obviously thought it was her best option. She decides, I'm going to try to seduce Judah. Now, she knows he just won't go for this, so she decides, and I'm sure this was months in the planning, like you just don't make a decision like this overnight, right? She packs her bags, she packs a disguise, she heads down quite a ways away to a place she knows that he's going to be passing on a trip, and she dresses up like a prostitute. No story, if you don't believe me, it's in Genesis 38. So she dresses up, it's starting to sound like Lifetime, right? You're like, wait a second, I saw that one. So uh, <laughs> Genesis 38, so, so she, she dresses up like a prostitute. He comes along, sure enough, he goes for it. He says, hey. And so um, he says, how much? And she says, I want a young goat. What I need is a young goat, you know? And he says, okay, I'm in. I'll give you a young goat. She says, well, hey, I just want to make sure you're good for it because sometimes, you know, some guys try to rip me off. So I'm going to need some proof. I need some identification. I need your driver's license, your passport. I need something. And he's like, yeah, I don't have those with me, but I got my signet ring. That's my personal signet ring with my seal. I've got my, my special staff with my name on it. This is proof of my identity. She goes, good, that, that'll stand for it, right? So, so they go in, you know, behind a bush or wherever you did. You know, so they, they go and they have sex, right? So now she apparently keeps her veil on the whole time, which seems a little weird to me. But anyway, maybe that's how they did it. But anyway, um, there's so many things that I could say that should not say. I'm just moving on. I'll let you just think them. Uh, anyway, so anyway, so he gets done. He says, thank you very much. You're awesome. And so he, he goes back, to, you know, and he gets back to the camp and he says, to, hey, there's a prostitute. Um, and she's down by this road, and I promised her a young goat, so could you deliver the young goat? So they go down there, and she's not there. And so they start asking around. There's no prostitute here. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? It's Hollywood and Vine. So and they're like, no, no, no. So, uh, so anyway, uh, 
Uh, so anyway, it's like, no, no, we haven't seen any prostitute like that. And pretty soon they're getting embarrassed asking. You know, it's like embarrassing. Like, who wants to be sent on that job, you know? Hey, are you the prostitute? I got the goat. Uh, no, <laughs> it wasn't me. Keep your goat, you know? So uh, anyway, they're like, bah, bah. You know, it's like crazy. It's just awkward. You know, it's like, so you stick the goat back in the backpack, hide the thing, let's go. And so they come back and they say, we can't find her. And he's going, hey, lucky me. It's like it was free, you know? So anyway... You move on a few months, and now she's pregnant, right? So she's pregnant. And so it's discovered she's pregnant. And when he's discovered, he's like, it's all in Hebrew, that blankety blank. So he's like, bring her out. She's been unfaithful to our family. She's been sexually immoral to our family line. Let's burn her. Let's get the bonfire going. Let's go burn her. And so she comes out and says, yes, can I help you? And he says, uh, you've been unfaithful. You're pre- yes, I am. And he says, well, we're going to burn you. And she says, okay, but would you like to know who the father is? Well, why not? You know, we might as well. Now he says, okay, well, it's the man who owns this ring. <laughs> oh, and by the way, this is his staff, his personal staff. So anyway, I just thought you, you might want to know. And he's like, oh, uh. Uh, need to use a bathroom. I'll be right. So he decided, okay, well, we'll just let it go. And so then she gives birth and she has twins. And now you have two little reminders. <laughs> hey, Dad. Or should I call you Grandpa? Like, what? Like, awkward, right? Now, if this is your family line and you're meeting Jesus of Nazareth and you're sitting around the campfire, hey, what's your family line? You know? Uh, oh, yeah, one of my great great she's really famous, Tamar. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, that's your grandma? Crazy. Huh? And you go, that's crazy. Yeah, even my family's not that messed up. That's not just one story. Let's go into the next woman. So Tamar pretends to be a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute. <laughs> and you get to Ruth and you go, oh, we're safe. Ruth, she's amazing. Turns out Ruth is a Moabitess. A Moabitess is not like just a Gentile. They're like an unspeakable Gentile. Because in their history, they had done things against Israel. So in the law of Moses, it said no Moabitess, no Moab can become part of, the, part of Israel for 10 generations. So she is like, no way. So she's in the family line. And then you get to Bathsheba, and we know her story, right? So you think your family's messed up. This is Jesus' family. And so the question is, why? Why? You, you know, why does Matthew, who's telling a story, making a claim that Jesus, of, why would he highlight these thwarted incidents from the past? You know, many scholars believe that not only were these four women, not only were they, you know, questionable moral behavior, but also very likely they're all Gentiles. We know Ruth was. We know Rahab was. Bathsheba was married to a Hittite, likely. Tamar was before, came from outside the family when the family is probably. So why would Matthew highlight these things? If you're making a case for Messiah, wouldn't you like kind of keep that under wraps? But it's almost like Matthew wants to say, not only did God keep his promise in his perfect time, 
But this Messiah is really different than you thought. And for this Messiah, he came for everyone. It doesn't matter what's your background. It doesn't matter what's your race. It doesn't matter your family's stories. It doesn't matter how, how messed up your family was. It doesn't matter what violence was done against you or what you've done to others. That if you want in and you're ready to follow this Messiah, this Messiah is for you. Now let me tell you something. In a room like this, you over the ridge, I know this. I've been a pastor a long time. And I know that for many of us, that even as Christ's followers, if you're here and you're just checking out Jesus, we have a filtered image of Jesus, a filtered image of church. We tend to think that if you want a relationship with God, you better clean up your act first. Because God is only interested in good people. And so if I want to have a relationship with God, I need to clean up my act first and do the best I can. Or maybe I'm not even eligible because here's what I've done. I've had this abortion. I've been divorced three times. I ripped off my business partner. I betrayed my wife. I, whatever the thing is, we have a story. And so we come into a place like this and we hear about Jesus. We think, I wish I could believe that. But I don't think it's for people like me. And for many of us, even though we're followers of Jesus, we still struggle with this. We struggle over the things we did either before or after we came to Jesus. And we struggle with this. And what Matthew is doing is he's saying right at the beginning, this Messiah, he's for everyone. He's not just for Israel. He's for the world. And as Jesus will say later on in his ministry, I have not come to call the righteous. If you think you're righteous, you can't come in. I, I have come for sinners. My whole family, the race is completely screwed up. This is why I came. I didn't come for righteous. I came because you're all so screwed up. And I came to rescue you. And I came to forgive you. And I came to give you a new life. Like I came to start something new. Catch this. I came to launch a new family. A new family line. I've come so that you can be born again and become part of my family. A new Israel. A new nation. A new community. A new humanity. So if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. I have come to start something new. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what was done to you. I don't care what you've done. All I care about is will you listen? Will you follow? Will you turn for your past? And will you trust me? And if you will, I want you. Amen? Amen. And that is gospel. That is you on Galion. That is good news. And what it means, I don't want to miss this. I mean, that's not just true for you. That is true for every man, woman, child you know. There is no one in your life that is beyond the gospel. There is no person, no matter how bitter or how hard, it's like they've committed, they're too far. 
that as members of his kingdom, this is the message we've been called to give. In fact, this is how the story will end. Next week, we're going to jump to chapter 28, and we're going to, we're going to go to the resurrection. We're going to see how the story ends. There was context where we're going. But there on your note sheet, I put the verse there. Look how this story ends. The, the story that begins in Matthew 1 with this Messiah is for everyone, not just Jews. It ends with this, go and make disciples of all nations in the Greek, the Gentiles. Okay? That as followers of Jesus to be part of his kingdom, it's not just for us to come in, that we become part of his movement, to share that message with others. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from, that this Messiah wants you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our church, what you're doing in our lives. We sense it, God, in so many ways. But God, we're just so thankful that when we gather here, that you meet us. And we're thankful today, God, as you've spoken to us through your word, that you are the great promise keeper. Those dark times, those times we feel like you're not listening, you're not answering, we're in a wilderness and yet as we learn in the silence, you are there and you're speaking in the silence. And you will always keep your promises. And then that you have come for us. It doesn't matter where we've been or what we've done. That you, you want us. You want to create a new family line that would come from you being the head of our new family. You'd be the, the new creation. And so God, as we... We celebrate that. Now we celebrate who you are as the great lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain. God, we pray that you'd meet us. And during this time of worship, as we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, would you meet us now? In this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? And that is the great king, uh, truth. In fact, that's the truth that we'll be looking at next week as we jump from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28. We story looking at the, the account of the resurrection and then final words of Jesus' command that start with all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. That I am king, not will be, I am. And so next week we're going to be talking about the reach on the resurrection. Now, often we think of the resurrection as something that happened at a point in time. It kind of proves who Jesus is. But we don't understand it's not the end of the story, it's the start of the story. And that we have an important part to play in that story. And so next week... We'll be talking about that. Now, here's what I encourage you. This is a crazy week. It's a, a great opportunity. You know, last night, we had a next step deserted our house, and two of the guests, two of the families, said that it was a year ago on Easter was the first time they came. And so what you see is over the years that, that there, it's a great entry point for many people far from God, people that maybe this is a foreign thing, and so... We're the hands and feet of Jesus, and he's just to go into town. So is there someone in your life that God's going to be going across your path this week, that God's putting in your heart? You need to invite. It's why we give you these cards. There's more of them out at the starting point called Unfiltered, the Reach of the Resurrection. It's an easy way. Hey, why don't you come and join us? And so just be praying about that. Be, be alert to opportunities. Would you pray with me this week? As a church, as a, a church that's unleashing a bit, would you join me in prayer for the services? Pray for me as the final preparation of the message this week. Pray for the people God brings. Uh, pray that God would move. His Holy Spirit would be here. And he began to take off, uh, take off the scales and that people would begin to see Jesus in a new way. 
and they would start a journey. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to see that happening? And so we want to pray for that this week. We want to be alert to opportunities. So may the Lord be with you this week, and maybe the King of, uh, of all creation, the one who came from the, li- the line of Abraham and the line of Jacob and the line of Judah, the one who was prophesied to come from the line of David and was prophesied by Isaiah and others who would come, the great king. Uh, may the lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, may the lamb that was slain, may he be your king this week and may he speak and may he lead and may he guide. And as he leads and guides, may you listen and follow. Amen. So if you need prayer today, to the right in both the the ridge and over here, I'll see you next week. God bless you. Have a great week.